0: open up the Word of God this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, the gospel of Matthew chapter 13. I'll be in the ESV and whatever version that you have we encourage you to follow along this morning. A few years ago my wife and I used to enjoy watching a show called The Antiques Roadshow. Now if you're unfamiliar with the show I'm pretty sure it still goes on. We haven't watched it in years but uh, people would gather together as these antique dealers would come traveling from town to town and And they would come to town, and people would come to have their goods and their values assessed that they thought could be worth something, or somebody maybe encouraged somebody to maybe go down and see what this might be worth. And so during the show, you'd have this long line of people who were desiring to talk with the antique dealers to see what it is they possessed, what the value of it might be. Now, inevitably, in every show, two things happen. First, there was always somebody in the show that had something that they really didn't realize what they had. And so the story would go something like this. Well, this got handed down to me by my great-grandmother, or it was given to me from the will from my mom's second aunt, and I'm really not even sure what it is. It sits on our coffee table. We maybe let the dog play, eat out of it, or let the Legos kind of build in it. We're not sure what it is. And the antique dealer would look it over, and he'd say, well, Actually, you might want to take a little bit more care of this. What you have here is a very rare vase or very, rare, really rare bowl, and it's actually worth about eight to $9,000, and the person would walk away pleasantly surprised. On the flip side, there was always somebody in line who was sure that what they had was extremely valuable, and they would get to the antique dealer and say something like, oh, yes, this has been in our family for generations, and it's been passed down and we, we lock it up and we don't let anybody touch it and I just brought it out here. I was very nervous even to bring it down and I've been told it's worth like ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And the antique dealer would look it over and he'd say, Well I have some bad news. It's a fake. It's a really good fake, but it's a fake nonetheless. In fact, you can see why it's a fake and he'd begin or she would begin to break down why that what they had they thought was of value really did not have much value. And what they thought was worth maybe ten to $15,000, he'd say, I'm sorry, it's worth about 50 bucks. Now the show would spotlight person after person who was trying to assess the real value of what they had. Some learned that they were in possession of something of, events, of immense value that they had no idea and weren't caring for it properly. Others would learn that that which they had guarded, that with which they protected, that which they thought was extreme value... It's actually pretty worthless. Today we're in Matthew chapter 13 and we're looking at the parables of Jesus and we're seeing the theme in Matthew 13 over the past couple of weeks as his parables talk about the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that we focus in here because the gospel of Matthew will talk about this concept the kingdom of heaven quite often. In fact in Matthew 13 alone he'll talk about the kingdom of heaven eight different times and so far we've seen this in the kingdom of heaven and the First parable in verses 1 through 23, in the parable of the sower and the seeds, we saw that members of the kingdom of heaven were those who have heard the word of God and let it penetrate the heart. They've accepted the message. We saw last week in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, that through the parable of the tares and the wheat, that this kingdom of heaven has opposition. There's one who's actively sowing against it. We saw in the small parable in Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33, the parable of the mustard seed, that the kingdom of heaven is larger than you think. It starts out small, but it continues to grow. This week, as we continue in the parables, Jesus is going to talk to us about the value of the kingdom of heaven. And our big idea this morning that I wanted to focus in on, the concept I want us to be thinking about is this. The kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything the world has to offer. But only the righteous will be there. We want to unpack that this morning. That nothing in this world can compare to the value of eternity with God. But in thinking through this, we need to ask ourselves, if the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, how does one enter into it? Let's look at Matthew 13, verses 44 through 50. The kingdom of heaven... Is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Would you join me in prayer as we spend time in God's word? Heavenly Father, we pause and give thanks to you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the many men and women through the generations who have preserved it, who have meticulously copied it from its original languages, those who have found life in it, who have held on to it, those who have fought for it, who have stood under its truth even at great cost of their life and the lives of those they love. We thank you this morning that we have opportunity to open your word, to hear you speak. And we pray now, Lord, that you would use the words that we'll hear today to not only edify us, but also challenge and transform our hearts, our hands, and our heads. We pray that we would humbly come under your word and allow it to speak and shape our souls for your glory and your honor. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. I want to look at three things this morning. I want to look at the value of God's kingdom, the joy of God's kingdom, and those who are welcomed into God's kingdom. Let's look at these first two parables again and just look at the value of God's kingdom. The first two parables sound somewhat similar. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know, every little boy dreams of finding buried treasure. In fact, there are TV shows dedicated to even grown-up boys looking excitedly for treasure. Whether they're looking for the secret lost treasures of a hidden world or they're busting open a storage shed to see what treasures may be behind that door, there are, we are fascinated with the concept of treasure. Treasure. But I want to take a moment to back out of the concept of antique roadshows or storage sheds or buried lost treasures of the ancient world. And I want us to travel back a couple thousand years to think about the original audience that Jesus is talking to. Let's imagine that we are living 2,000 plus years ago in the original context that Jesus is talking to. If we found ourselves there, we would find ourselves with a dilemma. How do we protect, or guard, or, or even hide, or secure those things that are valuable to us, our money, our treasures? In a world that doesn't really have a strong banking system, what do you do? Well, what we would do is probably what most people did. They would go out in the middle of the night, or late at night, and they would find a spot that was hidden, and they would bury their treasures, Maybe they would do this before going off to war, or maybe they would do this so they would uh, be freed from raiders or bandits, or maybe their town or their their territory is about to get invaded and they just wanted to make sure that their their possessions were accounted for later. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to go out and, and hide and bury their treasures. Now here's the problem. Not all buried treasure was reclaimed. Some people went off to war and never came back. Some people buried their treasures and forgot where they put them, much like you maybe wonder, where are my keys today? And some people buried their treasure and passed away and never told their children about such treasures. And so in the world in which Jesus is talking, it wasn't uncommon for people to stumble across treasures when they came onto a land to unearth hidden treasures. And so Jesus tells a parable that speaks to a a, a, a idea that the audience at that time could understand. Now, let's not get bogged down in the weeds of this parable. It's, it's meant to teach us the truth, and we don't want to get bogged down in the ins and outs of the details. Well, what we do know is this. This first man doesn't own the field. If he did, he wouldn't have to purchase it. Now, we can speculate over who owned it. We can speculate over did he did he divulge the information that he found it before he, before he bought the land? No, we can get caught up in all kinds of those things, and yet we would miss the point that Jesus wants us to understand here. And it's this. Whatever this man found, it was of such value that he was willing to give up everything to acquire it. This concept is repeated in the parable of the merchant and the pearls. In the first parable, a man stumbles across the treasure he really wasn't looking for. In the second parable, we find a man who has dedicated his whole life to pearl-seeking. Now again, let's think about the context of the original audience who is hearing this. At that time, pearls were extremely valuable. They were difficult to come by. They were difficult to pull out of the water. And they were dove for at great peril of life. And so the pearls at that time that they would bring out had immense value. Some people estimated that the price that they would pay for pearls back then would would be the equivalent of millions of dollars in our modern economy. And so you have this man who has made it his quest to find and trade and be in the business of pearls of great value. And he's found one that exceeds everything else that he's seen before. And because of this, he's willing to give up everything, including the valuable pearls that he already has, to obtain it. As Jesus shares these two parables, he shows us the value of the kingdom of heaven. It's more valuable than anything this world has to offer you. Now, don't read this parable wrong. Jesus is not saying we have to purchase our way into the kingdom of heaven, or that we have to do something to obtain the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom message, as J.I. Packer would say, and I would agree, is adoption through propitiation. And we're going to unpack that phrase in a little while. If you're a note-taker and want to write that down, we'll come back to that phrase, adoption through propitiation. Jesus is not saying you have to obtain or do something to earn this kingdom of heaven. He wants us to see the value. Reading these parables, it reminds me of Matthew chapter 19. If you have your Bibles or your phones, I want to encourage you just to slide over to Matthew 19 very briefly. Matthew 19 is almost this par- these parables playing out, but they play out in the, the opposite of, of what, this, what happens in these, these parables. In the parables of Matthew 13, you have two individuals that are willing to give up everything to obtain these treasures. In Matthew 19, there's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and he finds himself in the same dilemma, wanting to know what it means or how he can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Listen to Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to Jesus, to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What do I need to do to have the kingdom of heaven? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus is not even going to debate this point with him. He says, look, I've kept all the law. What we know from reading God's word is none of us can. But Jesus doesn't argue this point because what he's going to do is expose the reality that he's not honoring the law. He has something that he is idolizing ahead of his father. Jesus said to him in verse 21, If you would be perfect, Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus isn't given a financial lesson here in Matthew 19. And he's not giving one here in Matthew 13. Instead, he wants us to pause and think about where real treasure and real value lies. It's not in positions, it's not in titles. It's not in status. It's not in the financial security of what we're trying to build for retirement and 401ks or whatever you may be thinking about. These men were looking for treasures. And the question becomes, are you going to be looking for the treasures that the world is calling you to pursue or treasures that God is calling you to pursue? Jesus in these parables, and even to the man in Matthew 19, says the only thing that is truly valuable is not found in this world. It's the kingdom of heaven. And everything else in this world should align themselves under and around that. Now, he's not saying to be a follower of Christ, you've got to sell and give up everything. But what he is saying is this, where does the things that you own, the things that you value, the things that you wrap your life around, where do they stand in relation to the kingdom of heaven? Because the truth is, even the good things you're thinking about right now Pale in comparison to the value and to the worth of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, it costs you nothing, we're going to see here in a moment, because Jesus paid it all. And yet it'll cost you everything, because God says He is to be first. And everything else in my life should align itself around the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom ethic that God calls us to as we live for Him. And we see this under his word. The kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And In these first two parables, he shows us that it has value beyond compare. But he also shows us not only the value of God's kingdom, but the joy of God's kingdom. Look again at chapter 13, verse 44. There's a word there that I want to focus in on just for a few minutes. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, And buys that field. The man sold all that he had. He walked away from everything that he owned. For this treasure that Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He doesn't do it angrily. He doesn't do it bitterly. He does it with great joy. Now, I'm not talking about a joy in that everything will work out on this earth. I'm not talking about a joy where God is your your magic lamp and genie that you can rub and get whatever you want. I'm talking about a joy in knowing that what we have in God is worth far more than anything else this world has to offer. And to let those other things come into submission to Him is not work, but is joy for knowing who the Father is. This man in Matthew 13:44 laid down everything for the sake of obtaining this treasure, and he did so with excitement and joy. Brothers and sisters, do you consider your place in God's kingdom to be one that brings you joy? Do you rejoice in the opportunity to serve in his kingdom? Do you jo- rejoice in the opportunity to be identified with his kingdom? Do you rejoice in the opportunity to suffer for his kingdom? You know, one prayer that I have during this COVID-19 season is actually this. I've been praying that God would restore the joy of his kingdom people to his kingdom people. Let me tell you what I mean by that. As a culture, gathering together as his kingdom people has been one of many options that we have on a Sunday or a Saturday, depending on what church you may go to. And when Sunday comes, we have the opportunity to gather together and worship together. But it really is one of many options that we have on Sunday morning. Everything from sleeping in to tailgating at a game to to listening to music to hiking. And so we look at gathering together as one of many options that I have. And if we're really completely honest, there's many Sundays we walk through the doors of our church and joy isn't manifesting in our heart. When it comes to midweek gatherings with our life group, with our small group, with a one-on-one connect, or to have a meal with a brother or sister in Christ, we'll consider that as one of many options that I have in the week along with other things. And if I have room to squeeze it in, I might consider it. And if we were really honest, we would probably admit that there are days we come in to serve on a Sunday morning and the joy is simply not there. We're walking through the motions. Brothers and sisters, I I think that we have taken far too long for granted the reality of our ability to gather together as his people, to serve as his people, to celebrate together as his people, to encourage one another as people. My prayer during this season is that God will restore joy to his people. Can I challenge you over the next several weeks as we find ourselves in this season of slowdown and shutdown to make that your prayer as well? Not just for you and your family, but your friends, your family, your your neighbors, your church. Make it your prayer that we would have during this season restored to us the joy of being His kingdom people. In these parables, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And the joy of being His kingdom people is greater than any title that this world has to offer. So if this kingdom is so wonderful and there's so much joy, it begs the question, how do I get into this place of great joy and value? That leads us to our third parable. Let's look at those who are welcomed into this kingdom. Read with me again in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus comes into this parable and talks about judgment. He talks about this place of eternal punishment. And it seems odd, because if you've been following along the past couple of weeks, he just talked about that a few verses earlier in chapter 13, and verses 41 through 43. And it seems odd that Jesus would talk about this concept of eternal punishment or judgment so quickly. And he uses this time not a harvest season, but a fishing expedition, where fish of every kind are gathered together in the nets and brought ashore. And and when I hear the fish of every kind, I'm reminded of Revelation 5, where we're told that there'll be a time where every tongue, tribe, and nation, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, are gathered together to worship the Lord. And what Jesus is telling them is the kingdom is about more than just Israel, when fish of every kind are being gathered together. Now, I grew up outside of Chicago. And a few years back, before living here, I went from Chicago to living in Alaska on an island in south of Anchorage and so I went from Chicago to this living in National Geographic and I remember uh, I was there a few weeks and I got asked to go halibut fishing and I wound up really loving fishing when I was in Alaska and so we went long lining and what is long lining well it's not very complicated it's just like it sounds you get a really long line you might be thinking like a long rope and you're you're hooking hooks to it we'd hook 30 hooks a hook about every six feet apart. I guess it was social distancing for halibut. I don't know, but every six feet you hit, we put a hook on this line with some bait, and then we drop the line with an anchor and we leave it there for a couple hours and we come back. And so on my first fishing expedition, we come back and we start to pull the line up, and I'm the spotter and I see something begin to emerge, and I go, "We've got something!" And I'm excited, and my fishing buddies are excited. They've been fishing for years in Alaska. I said, "It's, it's a starfish," and I'm excited. I I'm from Chicago, I saw a starfish in the Shedd aquarium through glass, and now I'm holding a starfish, and I'm just in awe as I'm looking at this starfish, and finally one of my fishing buddies says, hey, we got, we got 29 more hooks to go, man, and he grabs the starfish out of my hand and chucks it back into the water. I got over my frustration, and we begin to pull a line, and I see second hook, oh, we got something again, it's, it's a starfish, and I pull it out, and I'm excited, and I'm looking, and I go, oh, we're not fishing starfish today. By about the seventh hook of seven starfish, starfish suddenly lost their luster. My fishing expedition came, starfish go this way, halibut go this way, starfish, 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 halibut, starfish, starfish. We were separating out the good, that which we wanted, from that which was unwanted. That's what happens on fishing expeditions. And so Jesus talks about this concept where these fishermen pull their net onto shore, and they're going to separate out the good fish from the bad fish or the evil fish, as he calls them in this parable. He's talking about judgment and separating. And again, it seems odd he'd be talking about this, but we need to think about a couple of things here. First off, when it comes to talking about judgment and eternal punishment and the concept that we would call hell, Jesus will actually talk about it more than any prophet or apostle in the Bible. Second thing we need to think about is this. Jesus will actually talk about this concept of hell, eternal punishment, more than he'll talk about the concept of love. And so we need to think about what is going on here and what is he at, talking about here in this judgment that is taking place. Now, hell is a topic that we hear a lot about. It's shaped often by our culture, but we don't ever let really God's word shape it. And so I want to take just a few moments to talk about five truths that we see in Scripture about hell, about eternal punishment. And I've pulled these from Wayne Grudem's book, Bible Doctrine, phenomenal book. Now, if you're a note taker, I'm going to talk quickly, and you're going to be kind of frustrated going, I can't keep up. At the beginning of the service, Pastor James talked about at our website, lifechurchnc.com live, that there is a lot of different things you can click on there. One of them is an interactive discussion guide. And if you've clicked on it already, you're going to notice those points are on there. If you haven't clicked on it, At the end of the service, click on it. There's some great questions, but also you're going to find these points again. So if you're a note taker and you're going to be like, hey, I can't keep up, I'm going to just encourage you to take a Taylor Swift approach and leave a blank space, all right? Blank space it out a little bit, and when we're done, come back and you can fill it in. But here's five truths that we want to learn about uh, the concept of hell that we see in the Bible. Here's number one. Hell's a place that was prepared for Satan and the fallen angels, Matthew 25, 41. Its purpose was for punishment for Satan and the fallen angels. Second, hell is a place of eternal punishment, Matthew 25, 46. A view that you may have that God will eventually let everybody out because he's going to love you that way, or that he'll just annihilate everyone in there, is simply unbiblical. It was a place reserved for Satan and the fallen angels, and it was a place of eternal punishment. It's also, third, a place of conscious punishment. We see it here. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase is actually used five different times in the book of Matthew. In fact, in Revelation 14, we're told that torment will go on forever with no rest. The fourth thing we need to know about hell is this there'll be degrees of punishment in hell. In Matthew 11, Jesus says that Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom will have more tolerable judgments than the people he's talking to who are actually seeing Christ and denying him. And so hell is this place prepared for Satan and his fallen angels, a place of eternal punishment, of conscious punishment, and finally what we need to understand is this, hell shows us the real magnitude of how God views sin. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we're told that the devil is thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet where they will it be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell was a place for Satan and his fallen angels to be punished forever. It's also the place where those who are unrepentant and not in Christ will be punished forever and ever. Let that sink in for a moment. The place that we're saying an unbeliever will go is, a place, is the same place where Satan will be punished by the king of the universe. Okay, let's think about this now for a second. Good fish go this way, bad fish go that way. The righteous go this way, as the parable says. Evil goes this way to a place of weeping and gnashing and eternal punishment. The righteous go to the kingdom of heaven. Now that begs the question, how is one made righteous? This is a good question for us to think through because the Jewish listener who's hearing this for the first time is thinking this. Yeah, the good fish go that way, the righteous. And I'm righteous because I was born Jewish, and therefore I'm righteous. I'm one of God's people. Jesus just told us two parables in Matthew 13, one of the sower and one of the tares and the wheat to remind us that not everybody who gives the appearance in the beginning of looking like a righteous person is. Not all who we think are going to be there are going to be there. We have to think about this because this is not only a problem that the Jewish audience had, it's a problem that we have too in our culture today. We think, well, I go to church every Sunday. I've been going since I was a kid. Surely I'm righteous. We think, look, I was born into a church family. My grandma goes to church. She was in the choir. My mom goes to church. She was in the choir. My dad took the offering. Of course I'm righteous. I go to church. I serve in my church. We can't fall into the trap of thinking that what I do, or what I was born into, makes me right with God the big picture that Matthew unpacks, in fact that the entire Bible unpacks, is that the righteousness that you need to be in this kingdom the right standing that you need doesn't come from you it comes from Christ I said earlier J.I. Packer says that the New Testament is adoption through propitiation what does that mean well again in that handout I told you about earlier um You're going to see some passages in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I want to encourage you to look at when we're done here today. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, here's what we learn. Our sin separates us from God. In fact, just like the rich young ruler who pretends that maybe we've kept all of God's law, we fall short. Whether we're violating looking at the Ten Commandments or looking at God's law, whether we're dishonoring our parents or dishonoring our neighbor or hating our enemy or not loving or coveting too much or desiring something that doesn't belong to us, or chasing after something that is we think is more valuable than God, we break God's law. This is called sin, and sin will be punished. God won't allow it into his presence. And sin isn't just like, I made a mistake. In Romans 5, it says that while we were enemies, sinners are called enemies of the creator of the universe, enemies of God. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, we're told in Romans 5, Christ died for us, and that we're justified by his blood, saved from the wrath of God. Our sin separates us from God. Let's think about this now and unpack that a little bit. Our sin separates us from God, but we can be justified by the finished work of Christ. What does that mean? It means Christ took on flesh, as we read the Bible, and lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father where you and I don't. And in the end, when he goes to the cross, what he says is this, Father, credit my perfect life to their account and take their sin and credit to my account and let my death justify them. Now justification is a legal term. It means not guilty. So through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the judge of all the universe, God, can hammer the gavel down and say, you're not guilty you're justified through the finished work of Jesus Christ. His death saves us from the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, tells us that God will pour out his wrath on all that who are not righteous, all who don't have right standing with God. So what does this mean about propitiation? Well, propitiation is a word found in 1 John 4.10. And what it simply kind of means in, in part of simple layman's terms is, is just this, that, God's, that Christ's life and death fully meet the demands of punishment that God has for sin. Remember, the New Testament means adoption through propitiation. It means Christ's death in life fully satisfies your sin payment that is owed. That's propitiation. Well, where does adoption come in? This is really the joy of the kingdom. We move from enemies of Christ to John chapter 1 tells us children of God. The joy of the kingdom is, I'm not just forgiven, but there's affection. There's love. There's relationship. There's the love of the Father. The highest title you could ever be given is not one that a university or a company can bestow on you. It's the one that God can bestow on you through Christ by calling you an adopted child of God through his finished work your family. This is why there's such joy in letting go of everything and reshaping your life around the loving judge and father of creation and recreation. Justification and propitiation, it's legal. It's the judge hammering on the gavel and saying, you're not guilty. Adoption is, as we'd say around my house, it's a la familia, it's family. It's I'm taking off the judge's robe, I'm coming off the bench, and the judge is saying, as he puts his arm around you, Son, daughter, let's go home. The kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And there is joy in the kingdom because we move from enemies to adopted family. And those who are welcomed into God's kingdom are not by what they do, not by what they have done or their parents have done, it's by what Christ has done. The reality is there's a day coming when those who are in Christ will go one way and those who are not will go another. Okay, so how do we apply this passage to us today? Let me give you three things to think about as we apply this text and begin to, as we would say, land the plane, right? First off, if you're listening and you don't, you don't consider yourself a believer, you don't know if you're a believer, I want to say first off, thank you for sticking with us listening and having the opportunity and privilege you've given us to share with you the gospel message. And if you consider yourself not a believer in Jesus Christ, as Paul would say, I would implore you to be reconciled to God. Take time today to go back through these passages that I've mentioned. Maybe you'd listen to this sermon again and read through God's word and see what it means to have a right relationship with him. Maybe you're watching this with friends or family, or maybe you've gone to church with friends and family in the past. You've talked about this, and now it's beginning to say, God, I I get it. I want to surrender to you as my Lord and Savior. I encourage you to reach out to them. If you don't have anyone to reach out to, I encourage you to reach out to someone on staff, myself or Pastor James or someone else on staff, who would love to talk to you about the gospel message. Now, if you're listening today and you do consider yourself a believer, can I give you two things to think about? One is let this motivate us to share in word and deed the gospel message because a day is coming where those who are his are going to go one way and those who are not are going to go another. And I would implore you to use this season to be praying for opportunities to share God's love and truth in word and deed. I want to say both. Because if you're just sharing the word and yet you're a raging jerk and not living under it, I'm not talking about perfection, I'm just talking about living under his authority. If you're just speaking his word but it's not making a bit of difference in your life, confess of your hypocrisy today. If you think you can just share in deed but never speak, you're missing the truth of Ezekiel (laughs) that it's the spoken word of God that brings dry bones to life, that brings people from death to life. So I would implore you, if you're someone who is nervous and tongue-tied, use this season to be praying for God to impress and implore upon you the opportunities to be more bold and courageous in sharing with joy this gospel message. And finally, if you consider yourself a believer and you're listening today, I pray that this week you would have joy and the value of the kingdom impressed upon your heart. Can I challenge you in a Matthew 19 rich young ruler style to take some time this week to let Jesus ask you, what is it that you need to go and sell? What is it that you need to go and give up that's standing between you and a more vibrant relationship with God? Would you have the courage to think through that and pray through that this week? Would you let God give you the courage this week to maybe take your life, you've got some downtime right now, and maybe inventory it. Well, Write down the 10 things that you see are most valuable to you and rank them and see where they land. And would you give someone in your life the courage to look over that list and be honest with where you think maybe God would want to rank those things? I pray that during this season you would allow God to take the things of this world that they call worthwhile and show you how worthless they truly are. In the same fashion, may he show you the unending worth of that which sometimes the world calls foolish and worthless, and that is the kingdom of heaven that is worth far more than anything this world has to offer as a place where God brings us into his joy through the finished work of Christ. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come under your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have through technology to connect with our church body and, and people around the county, the community, and the world. And we pray that this morning, as we are thinking through your word, Lord, that you would... Lord, we wouldn't shut off this message and go, well, that was great. We had church this morning. But Lord, when the, when the video stops... May the real work begin. May we allow God the opportunity to have his way in our hearts, in our hands, in our heads. May we be people who are willing to surrender more for his glory. It's not a call to sell everything. It's just a call to remember to place things in their proper context. Lord, with you at the center, you are the king. And may everything else come under it. Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to think and pray through these things this week. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. A reading from John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Life Church, we love you. We miss worshiping with you in person, and we look forward to seeing you again real soon. We pray that you have a great week.